You know, I was thinking about uh, what's, what has been going on here about facing your fears in the face. And I thought I would take that seriously this week, what it would look like to face my fears in the face. And so I got online to do a little research to try to figure out what my fears are. And did you know how many fears there are just out there? Let, let me give you a couple examples. Uh, here's ones that you may have been familiar with. Uh, arachnophobia. The fear of spiders. Claustrophobia. The fear of beautiful. Acrophobia. The fear of heights. Man, y'all are smarter than I am. Uh, necrophobia. The fear of what? Nests. Next close death. Okay, here are some that are a little uh, less common. Maybe you've heard of these. Cholerophobia, the fear of cholera. <laughs> the fear of cauliflower. No, it's the fear of clowns. All right, here's one. Electorophobia, fear of chickens. Consec consecotaliophobia, fear of chopsticks. This is my personal favorite, pogonophobia, fear of beards. Do you know what the number one, if I can put it this way, most popular fear is? The number one fear in the human race, public speaking. Glossophobia, if you want to know the technical term. Glossophobia. So what I'm doing right this second should be pretty terrifying, and, I, and, it, and it is at some level. I can hide my fears pretty well, but it's, uh, if you think about it, why is the act of what I'm doing right now, why would this be scary? Think about it. Um, you've got all these eyes looking at you. You're seen. You're exposed. You're vulnerable. And if I mess up, if I screw up, if I make a joke that kind of is stupid, if I trip over my words, if I fail in some way, uh, then there's a real fear that you're going to reject me, that I'll be humiliated, I'll feel isolated, I'll feel alone. Public speaking at its root is essentially the fear of being seen, the fear of being known, without any guarantee of being loved and accepted. And when you put it in those terms, then you start to realize, oh, okay, that feels a little bit more familiar. Uh, I don't know if you're fans of the Avid Brothers. I am. Uh, in one of their great songs, Paranoia in B Major, they have this line. It says, I've got secrets from you. You've got secrets from me. Because you're so worried about what I'm going to think. Baby, I'm worried too. But what does that line say? That line says we're keeping things from each other because we're afraid, we're worried. If you know me for who I really am, you won't love me. You won't accept me. Donald Miller in his book, Blue Like Jazz, put it this way and see if he can put language to this feeling for you. He says this, I fear what people will think of me and that's the reason I don't date very often. People really like me a lot when they only know me a little. But I have this great fear that if they knew me a lot, they wouldn't like me. That is the number one thing that scares me about having a wife because she would have to know me pretty well in order to marry me. And I think if she got to know me pretty well, she wouldn't 
like me anymore. We're talking about our story this week, and part of our story, part of what is going on with you and me, is that deep inside of us there is this thing called sin. And all of us feel it in different ways. It's this feeling that you and I are infected. This feeling that we're stained. This feeling that there's something wrong with me. And deep down inside of us, every one of us has two massively core desires. Do you want to know what they are? Core desire number one, I want to be known. Core desire number two, I want to be loved. And I can prove this to you by the way that you relate to Instagram. The reason why you broadcast your life to the thing called the internet and the watching world to see you is because you so desperately want to be known. This is why you even take pictures of what you're eating, because you want the world to see and to know you. Here's what I'm eating right now. We want to be known. But when we blast it onto the world, we don't just leave it. What do we do? We check it. How many likes is it getting? How many comments is it getting? Because there's this thing that says we want to be loved. Those likes and those comments are sort of these little, it scratches that itch of I'm being known and I'm being loved in this moment. So what happens when you have this thing called this stain inside of you called sin, but you also so desperately want to be known and loved, you put all that together, what does that create? Deep fear. If someone really knows me, really knows me, they won't like me. When I was in high school, I was involved in Young Life. I was involved in the youth group. I was the head of FCA. I led a lot of different prayer meetings that went on throughout the week at my school. Very publicly religious. And what a lot of people didn't know about me is I was lying to my parents about what I was doing on the weekend. I was crossing boundaries with my girlfriend at the time that I now really regret. And so I was living throughout most of high school this double life. And I had this deep fear, what if somebody finds out what I'm really like? And so what that meant for me is that my whole high school experience was pretending and putting on masks and being happy a lot and being the kind of the funny guy because if I'm happy and funny and religious and really into Jesus, then nobody's going to ask about my struggles and what I'm really doing in secret. And that's kind of what I thought Christianity was. You hide all the bad stuff and broadcast the good stuff. Deep fear. What if I'm known? And what if someone really sees what I really struggle with, what I really wrestle with, what I really do, how I fail? They won't love me. Well, I want to share with you a quick story tonight from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, about a woman who really knows that fear quite well. And she has an encounter with the author of her story. So let's see what happens. This is John chapter 4. We're going to pick it up in verse 4. It says this. Now he, that's Jesus, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob was give, had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Good to know. It's the sixth hour. Now, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Now, let's hit pause right there. Here's what's going on in the story. Jesus stops in this place called Samaria, which Jewish people at the time, of which Jesus was a Jewish person, no one stopped in Samaria. 
Samaria, for my Harry Potter fans out there, was full of mudbloods. People that Jewish people didn't associate with, didn't like. And he just kind of rolls up in there, and he sits down by this well, which is how people got water back in the day. And up comes this woman to draw water. Seems very normal. But it was the sixth hour. And you're reading the story, and you're like, who cares about that little detail? Here's why that little detail is massively important. Because the sixth hour in Jewish language basically means it was noon. The hottest part of the day in the Middle East. Not pleasant to be outside. No one drew water from a well in the hottest part of the day. What would happen is that the cool parts of the day, in the early morning and in the kind of early evening, women would go out together as sort of like a social thing. And they chit-chat, they'd exchange recipes, they'd talk about The Bachelor, and they would draw water and then kind of have their water for the day. No one would went out in like the hottest, oppressive, like painful part of the day. No one did it. Why is this woman going to this well at this time? What we're going to find out later in the story is that she has no friends. Everyone in the town despises her. She would have been seen as a loser. She has no friends. Everyone wanted nothing to do with her. And, and the reason why that is, if you, find, if you keep reading the story, some details come out about her life. And the details are this. She has had five marriages. She was married once, ended, got remarried, ended, got remarried, ended, got married again, ended, got married again, ended. And now she's living with a dude that she's not married to. She is the girl of her village that sleeps around. She crosses boundaries with guys. Everyone knew it. The girls wanted nothing to do with her because either they were threatened by her because she's taken all the guys or she's just so publicly embarrassing herself they want nothing to do with her. The guys thought she was nasty or they only wanted her because of what they could, have, could get from her. If you think about it, this is a human being's worst nightmare. Everyone knows you. You're known but not left. And so she goes out to get water in the middle of the day because no one else is there. No one else is there to mock her, to remind her of the fact that she's dirty. No one else is there to remind her of the fact that she doesn't have any friends. She goes out by herself because this is her little safe place to get away from everybody else. This is my little spot. And there's Jesus waiting because he had to go through Samaria. And what does he do? He he just strikes up a conversation with her. Hey, can I get a drink? And as they start talking, I won't read the whole story to you, but they start talking. And he starts engaging her about her life. He essentially says, sweetie, I know about your past. And I know about who you're living with right now. I know everything about you. And she starts getting uh, really uncomfortable, which uh, feels normal, right? You would feel uncomfortable, too, if some stranger walked up to you and started talking about your secrets. So she starts trying to change the subject. Can we talk about something else? And he just engages and stays with her, and, and he doesn't leave. He's the first person in her life that said, I know everything about you, and I'm not leaving. He stayed. 
And I wonder, I just wonder if, if you've had that experience. Have you ever been fully known and truly loved at the same time? I heard the story um, recently about this young lady named Lydia. She grew up in this small, really strict religious town. And at some point, she just couldn't take it anymore. It was too much pressure, too much pressure to be perfect, too much pressure to have it all together. And so she broke out and she moved to New Orleans. And in New Orleans, she got a job. She got a boyfriend. And her boyfriend got a job in front of the uh, TV. And uh, she just kind of lived her life of just doing endless partying. She gave her life to, to, uh, to things that she would later regret. She was just kind of being the wild, crazy, I got to get away from my family, got away from my, get away from my religious upbringing. And she just went bonkers. And while she was there, eventually at some point she kind of hit rock bottom. Just kind of couldn't, she was, she was so empty, so hollow, couldn't handle it anymore. She was living with this dude that was just worthless. So one night she just decides, to, I'm going to break out. So she takes her money from, for that month's rent, leaves it on the counter, and starts to head back home. She gets, she gets back into her hometown. She doesn't move back in with her parents. She rents an apartment. She gets a job at the local diner. But she couldn't shake her past. Everyone in her small little town knew she was the girl that moved to New Orleans. And so when people would walk by her, they would whisper, that's the girl that moved to New Orleans. Everyone knew she was a mess. She just kind of wrecked her life. So that Thanksgiving, her parents invite her to come into her house, her, you know, their house, and have Thanksgiving dinner with them. And so she sits down at the table with them, and they're having kind of this awkward family dinner. And it was pleasant. It was nice, okay. After the dinner is over, she kind of excuses herself and starts wandering through her house that she hasn't been in a while. And she goes into the living room, and there on the mantel are all these little, you know, family knickknacks. And there's a picture of her from her graduate, her high school graduation, that's framed. And at the very bottom of the frame, it says, "Our Lydia." And she reads it, and she just melts because she understood what that was prominently placed right there on the mantle in this living room. It was her family's declaration against a whole world that knew about her and all of her mistakes. That said, she's ours. And we love her. We treasure her. In this house, we're not ashamed of her. You can whisper. You can say what you want. In this house, she is ours. And Jesus shows up right in the middle of this woman's life in John 4. And maybe he's showing up right in the middle of your life. And he says, I know everything about you. I know your doubts. I know what makes you insecure. I know what parts of your life you hate. I know where you feel wounded. I know where you feel lonely. I know where you feel rejected. I know where you feel guilt and shame. And you're mine. I'm not ashamed of you. I'm not leaving He is the only one that knows you to the bottom and doesn't leave. He's the only one that knows everything about you and says, I'm staying. How can we know that, though? How can we know that that's how he thinks about you and how he thinks about me? Here's why. One simple answer. The cross. The cross. What happened at the cross? Jesus was stripped naked publicly exposed. Everyone got to see him for everything that he was. 
He was extremely vulnerable, and there he was with all eyes on him. And how did people respond? They mocked him, they laughed at him, they insulted him, they spat in his face. Why? Everyone rejected him, his friends abandoned him, but not just his friends, even God. On the cross, Jesus calls out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Everyone forsakes him. Why? Because he loves you enough to take your place. He is undergoing the shame and the public humiliation for you so that you wouldn't have to. He's taking public shame on the cross to heal you of your shame. If if anything, the cross tells you two things at the same time. On the one hand, it tells you, I know you. Because what the cross is, is Jesus saying, I know all of your sin, all of your shame, all of your junk. That's why I'm having to die right now. I know you. But it also says, at the same moment, I love you. I would rather die than to live without you. I'm glad to give up my life for you. You all know how this woman, how how the story ends with this woman? She leaves this little encounter with Jesus, runs back into the town, and tells everyone, y'all have got to meet this man. He knows everything about me, and he doesn't leave. I mean, what kind of inner transformation would, would that have had to have done in her to go back to these people that hate her, think she's crazy, want nothing to do with her, and for her to reach out to them and say, y'all got to meet this dude. This is unbelievable. Come, come. Unbelievable transformation. Let me end with this. I, um, I saw this story on... Um, like National Geographic uh, a while back. It was, I think, on the show Planet Earth, which was focusing on, like, the jungle section. And it started talking about this incredible fungus. Let's just talk about fungus for, you know, the end of the night. That's a great way to end. This fungus, what it does is it's this little, uh, it's this spore that when it lands on the back of an ant, it bores its way into the ant's body. And then the fungus somehow makes its way through the bloodstream to get into the ant's mind. And it somehow sends messages to the ant's mind. It kind of like puts it under like mind control for the ant to climb up to the top of the tallest tree. So now this ant is like brainwashed zombie under the mind control of this crazy fungus. And it climbs to the top of the tree. And when it's at the top of the tree, it grips on with its mouth and with its hands and it just locks in. And then what the fungus does is it begins to digest the ant from the inside out. And the ant is starting to hemorrhage and bubble. And what happens is that there slowly over time this, uh, this uh, mushroom-like thing begins to sprout from the top of the ant's head. This is all true. You can YouTube this, I promise. This is insane. Mushroom thing starts to sprout on the top of the ant's head. And then when it's there... And when the wind blows, it kind of releases all of these spores that do the same thing with all these different ant colonies. It just destroys ants, and that's how it spreads. Crazy. But here's the crazy thing about it. Here's what's even crazier. When an ant in an ant colony will discover that one of the other ants has been infected, what the colony will do is that they will send a healthy ant to essentially grab the infected ant and physically escort it as far away as possible from the camp to save the camp. But what happens is that the healthy ant, as it goes, it gets infected as well. 
and that healthy ant dies in order to save and to protect the colony. In many ways, Jesus is just like that ant that enters into our life, though we are infected and the stain of our sin and the stain of our shame is so strong, it's threatening to destroy us. And he enters in and he takes it so that we might live. He dies. The uninfected for the infected. He trades your place. That's Jesus. If you hear anything else from me tonight, hear me say this. Your story has a hero. Your story has a hero, and it is Jesus. In him, you are deeply known, fully known, and truly loved at the same time. Here's the question I want to end with. Do you know it? Do you know him? Let me pray. Father, thank you that you have sent your son Jesus to become infected with our sin in our place. To be publicly shamed and humiliated so that we might be freed from the shame and the humiliation that we all fear. Thank you that you know us. You know all about us, all of our failures, all of our struggles, all of our secrets, all of the things that we are terrified of anybody else finding out about. That you know us and you don't run, but you actually move towards us in love. Father, I pray that those two things would come together in each of our own hearts tonight and actually melt us and transform us just like this woman. That we would be overflowing with this confidence on the inside of just knowing there is someone out there, the, really the only person out there that matters, that doesn't reject us. Thank you that you love us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.